The text for tonight's sermon can be found in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. John, chapter 6, verses 60 through 71, starting at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, my heart's desire in this message is that those hearing would say with Peter, when Jesus asked them, are you going to go away from me? Would say, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Oh, that thousands might say this. Believers, say it again. And unbelievers, say, my search is over. I'm home. Jesus is my home. So, do that mightily through this word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There is no Christmas story, no traditional birth of Jesus story in the Gospel of John. We're still in the Gospel of John, still in chapter 6, but we're stepping back to get a bigger picture now of how Christmas is woven into this Gospel. It doesn't have a story at the beginning like Luke does and Matthew does. Instead, the Christmas story is woven through the gospel, and its meaning is given repeatedly in the gospel. So it begins, first verse of the book, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So all the way back into eternity, there was the Word, and this mysterious statement, the Word was God, and paradoxically, the Word was with God. Was God with God? And immediately you're into weighty Trinitarian matters, aren't you? I mean, you don't have to go reading theology books to know that's strange. How can you be God and be with God at the same time? Well, that's why we are who we are. In, in Trinitarian, He is God and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and the Father is God. There's one God and three persons. They're with each other, and they're one. 
And then verse 14, Christmas. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So the eternal word that had no beginning, never came into being, now, in the fullness of time, becomes flesh. And in that way, the Son of God becomes flesh. The Son of God, word, same person, becomes flesh, and in becoming flesh, reveals God like he had never been revealed before. <coughs> Excuse me. So here we have God, he was God, clothing himself with flesh. You remember flesh from chapter 6. <coughs> and the glory of God, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, is being revealed like that glory had never been revealed before. And that's John's understanding of Christmas. God the Son comes. He is God. He is with God. He reveals God. <coughs> and now that revelation is dominant by grace, in grace, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So Christmas is the, the eternal word, the eternal Son, clothing himself with flesh, in order that grace might come to sinners. Truth might come to sinners. Go a little farther. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that's Christmas and Good Friday, all in one, that whoever believes, this is the purpose for Christmas, that whoever believes in him <coughs> might not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So Christmas is not for condemnation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So Christmas is for salvation. That's why he came. Not to condemn, but to save. At the end of the book, near the end of the book, in chapter 18, Jesus is standing before Pilate. This is a weighty interchange between Jesus and Pilate. Chapter 18, verse 36 and 37, Pilate so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. So here's Christmas. Why were you born? For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So another way to say it is that 
uh, the Son of God, the Word of God, has come into the world, he says here, to bear witness to the truth. Now, what's the effect in Jesus' life and ministry of bearing witness to the truth? Chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. He says very plainly what the effect is. He says in John eight thirty one, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So the meaning of Christmas is the Son of God comes, and he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he speaks the truth. I, I came to bear witness with my person and my words to what is true, what is ultimately real and true. And its effect is freedom, liberty from the guilt of sin, the power of sin, death, Satan, hell, meaningless life. Oh, the liberty that comes into the life of a person who discovers that Jesus is the truth. See, he was the way, the truth, and the life. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Now the question is, how does that happen? How does he do that? How, how is it that the truth, the spoken truth of God and the personal truth of God in Jesus set people free from sin and condemnation. And now we're in chapter 6, okay? This is all leading to chapter 6. One more sermon on chapter 6. You recall, don't you, that in verse 51, we read this. 651. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. That's Christmas. I came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, me, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now link that with chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh. Why? So that verse 51 could happen. He came to give his flesh. He came to give his flesh for the life of the world. He came to, to have flesh that could be pierced by nails. He came to have flesh that could be pierced with a sword and lacerated on his back and a crown of thorns pressed somewhere in the universe, namely on, on the fleshy head of the Son of God. And, a, and cheeks that could be slapped around and beard that could be pulled and eyes that could be spit upon so that the saliva would drip down. That's why he came. That's why he needed flesh. So that he would have something with which to die, something with which to suffer. That's the only way grace can come to sinners. And he came full of grace. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And the reason we have received grace upon grace from the fullness of the incarnate word is that the incarnate word came to have flesh so that he could die for sinners. Had he not died for sinners, we wouldn't have grace. We would have only judgment. And therefore Christmas is massively and mainly preparation for Good Friday. Don't isolate this holiday. It's all of a piece with what he came to do. 
So the meaning of Christmas in the Gospel of John is that there was uh, an eternal God in more than one person. We know three when we take all the Bible into account. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, the Word, takes on flesh that he might have flesh with which to die. And in giving his flesh for the world, the world can have life because now sins can be forgiven. Righteousness can be provided. A substitute is there. And by faith in him, that is by eating him, symbolically we consume him. He becomes our treasure, our food, our life. His life is now in us. Our sins are covered and we have eternal joy with him. So what I want to do That's the way I see Christmas in the Gospel of John. All that's to make this a Christmas sermon. Now what I want to do is take two verses from chapter 6 that I'm just itching to talk about. And that I passed over in the last seven sermons too quickly. And I'll point you to the verses and then we'll, we'll spend the rest of our time talking about them. Verse 63... And verse 68, 63 and 68. So here's 63. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's the phrase I want to latch on to. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, put those alongside verse 68. Let's set up verse 68, get it right here. Um, He said that many disciples turned back from following him any longer. And then Jesus asked the 12, well, do you want to go as well? That's verse 67. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So verse 63 says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And verse 68 says, you have the words of eternal life. Jesus talking in 63, Peter talking in 68. So the word is made flesh. And now this flesh is given for the life of the world. And that life, he says, comes through the Spirit. He offers you this life now in this service, in this message. And I want to figure out how. I want you to know in the next few minutes, all right, if he came into the world and his words are life and the Spirit gives life, And his flesh had to be torn and killed for there to be life. And grace comes from all that. How does that work for me? How do I get in on the life? Because it says clearly in chapter 3, verse 36, that there will be some upon whom the wrath of God will remain. And I don't want you to be in that number. I want you to be among the number for whom the wrath of God has been lifted taken away. No condemnation, no wrath anymore from God. But not everybody is in that condition. And so the question is, how do you get there? How do you stay there? 
How do you enjoy life forever with God rather than God's wrath? Verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. <clears throat> now, what, what happened when Jesus said verse 65? I'm going to verse 65 because... It sets up the problem for 68, which I think is so illumining for 63. So in verse 65, Jesus said these controversial words, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And then verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, I don't think it's an accident that that statement and that event happened immediately after verse 65. Verse 65 asserts the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation. Which rebellious, dead, hard-hearted sinners will be made alive and drawn to the Son and which won't? Answer, those whom, to whom it is granted. That's what verse 65 says. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. My Father grants it, and they come. And many heard those words and left him. And it's been happening for 2,000 years that way. <clears throat> They left him. So the sovereignty of God over salvation and over rebellious sinners' autonomy drives people away. Lots of people, according to Jesus, from 5,000 down to 11, although there were other issues as well that were driving them away. So what, what happens in their minds, <clears throat> in your mind? Will you be among the number who are driven away by verse 65? What happens? Objections start to rise. And what I want to do is try to get inside Peter's head because he didn't leave. I want to know why Peter didn't walk away. <clears throat> I, I want to know that because I know some of you who are pondering walking away. Objections begin to rise over the sovereignty of God in the view of the world we live in. Objections that send people into huge confusion and sometimes into terror, terror. I wonder if you've ever been there. You know, if you find it easy to believe in the Lord Jesus and in his sovereignty over all things, you should rejoice because there are some who don't and it is agonizing for them. Many of us have walked through those seasons of, of life. I, I thought of this analogy this afternoon as I was working over this sermon again. <clears throat> 
Suppose you are, I don't know who to pick. It's going to sound prejudicial no matter who I pick. Um, you're a lover of country music and you don't, you don't know, even know any classical music. Or you're from another culture entirely. And you come and you hear Fantasia on the old 100th played on a massive pipe organ. The first time you hear it, will probably it will just sound like sheer noise, Wah! just noise. This massive sound breaking over your head. You say, "What is that?" Ah! Or another analogy: uh, suppose you live in a place where um, it's just like the Shire. I mean, it's just all warm and cozy and grassy and brown and green and suddenly you wake up and somebody has transplanted you into the middle of the Himalayas and all you see for hundreds of miles is massive rock cliffs I mean I would think that would be absolutely terrifying if you've never seen them before that's the way God is he does have his pasture land attributes. I think he likes country music. <laughs> some of it. Some of it. <laughs> and he likes it when the old 100th is really blasted with the help of Rafe Bon Williams out of a pipe organ. He does. it, And and our lives are, are brought into contact with this whole terrain here of God. And some of this book is just so warm and, mm, yes, I'm going to stay here. And others is just, Pruh! because you don't toy with God. You don't get God in your back pocket. You don't. He's not just pasture lands. He has his Himalayan side and you can learn to love it if you're safe if you know he cares for you if you know he loves you if you know you're not going to fall off any of those cliffs you can just walk along the edge and look over and say whoa this is awesome as long as I know I'm not falling I'm trying to get inside the head of us who for me about um, 30, <clears throat> 1968, 69, whatever. I can't ever do this math on the fly. Um, and for some of you, it's right now. And I'm talking about the kind of terror in your, in your head that makes you look, and the sovereignty of God implies such things as to make you want to leave the faith. You want to leave the faith. I don't take that lightly. I really don't take that lightly. There are people who kill themselves over these things. We're not playing games here. This can destroy your brain. Or, if you're Peter, it doesn't. And I want to get in Peter. I want to figure out Peter. Why didn't you walk away? Why didn't you get so mad when Jesus said, verse 65, that you said, I'm out of here. It's not the kind of God I, I want to serve. 
Jesus said to Peter and the rest, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, I think that question, to whom shall we go, hints we've considered going. I mean, why would, why would he say that? We've allowed ourselves the thought that oh, this is a hard saying. Maybe there's an easier one somewhere. Where can we go? So he's, he's looked around. And I would like to pretend for a few minutes that Peter is here now in the 21st century looking around to go. If he were alive today, he would say, where should we go? Shall we go to those who deny the full sovereignty of God and leave it decisively with sinners to raise themselves from the dead and give themselves spiritual life and become decisive creators of their own faith and provide decisive impetus out of their own creative autonomy to come to Christ. And as he considers that, Peter says, no, I'm not going to go there because as many problems as I have with my sovereign Christ, that would be hopeless. I know my own heart. I know many people around me. If left to myself to provide the decisive impulse to awaken faith, to create spiritual life, to have an affection for Jesus, to produce everything I need to produce in order to close with Christ, I'm dead. He's not going there. He doesn't have the problem solved on the other side. He's just not going there. And neither am I. I've been there. I'm not going back. Or to whom shall we go? Shall we go to those who deny that sin is, is really that bad? In other words, it's not that enslaving. Sin is not a blinding power. It's not bondage. It's a, it's a bad influence. Yes, it's a bad influence. It's not slavery. And it's not death. We're just tainted. We're not helpless. Shall we go with them? Shall we go there? That would be easier than the way Jesus talks. Let's go there. Wouldn't that be better? Peter says. And we know our souls better than that. We're not just tainted Nobody on the planet submits to God's authority and God's truth and God's way and Christ on their own. Sin is a bondage. It is not just a bad influence. And so we ponder, shall we go there? That would be easier. And Peter says, no, not going to go there either. I'm going to stay right here. As many problems as I have with Jesus calling me a slave to sin... I'm staying right here because the alternative has no life. I'm dead. Or where shall I go? Shall I go to those for whom sin, though it may be serious, is not such a big problem because God forgives it all. Everybody gets saved. Every sin gets forgiven. Yes, 
That's a rosy world. Let's go there. Let's go away from Jesus and his hell talk and wrath talk and, and death talk and forgiveness talk and some come talk. And let's go there where everybody gets forgiven and gets saved. And Peter ponders and says, well, that sounds pleasant, but it's the creation of sentimentality, not reality. There are horrific evils in the world. Outrages in history and in my own life that cannot be swept under the rug of the universe. Mere forgiveness without broken-hearted embrace of a magnificent atonement will not cut it with my conscience or with the justice of God. I can't go there. I can't. I can't go there in view of John Piper and Adolf Hitler. There has to be an atonement. And there has to be an embrace of the atonement for this world to be set right. I'm not going to go there to that rosy, unrealistic, sentimental world. To whom then shall we go? Shall we go to those who deny that God exists? Wouldn't that just solve all the problems? Some of you are toying with that. This vision in chapter 6 of God is such that you look at it and you say, I think it would be easier just to have no God at all. Peter says, no, because if there's no God at all, and human beings are just accidental, complex collections of matter and energy, then my very indignation over the evil of the world is nothing different than a growling stomach. The very thing that's driving me away from God with all of its moral force is nothing but molecules bouncing around in my brain like a growling stomach. And Peter looks at that and instead of going to that absurd, tragic world and maybe killing himself like Judas did, he says, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go. That's the end of my list. I have others in my mind. Other worlds you could entertain entering into. Philosophies, worldviews, different saviors, different lords, different friends, different treasures than Jesus Christ. What we see in the Bible is one thing. And what our hearts often crave is another until God subdues us. Another view of sin we want, another view of God we want, another view of salvation we want. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, for some of you in this season, I, I hope it would be in this season, you've been tottering. You're sitting there on the fence looking at Jesus and his words and his ways and his actions 
And, and then you're, you're looking, is there a better alternative? This is full of far, I don't like these problems over here. And it's, there's, there's a lot of things here that feel threatening to me. Is there another one? Is there another one? And my, my desire is that Jesus would show up in this room and so work on your heart. It is the Spirit that gives life. Isn't, isn't your murmurings and ponderings and meditations and reflections and cogitations and philosophical ruminations that gives you life? The Spirit gives life. And when He does, the fence-sitting ceases to be an option anymore. And you jump. You've seen enough. You can't solve all the problems. Nobody has ever become a Christian because the Jesus that is true has solved all their problems. More problems are created by becoming a Christian. They're just different. The kind you can live with because you've got a a mighty Lord and a great Savior and a wonderful treasure and an awesome friend and your sins are covered and wrath is removed and now I've got a thousand problems in trying to sort this out and live this out and be what he calls me to be. But oh, for this set of problems over the absurdity and the meaningless and the dead-end suicidal life of being a bunch of chemicals when I know everything in me is saying I'm not. Love is something. Hate is something. Justice is something. It's not just chemicals. These new atheists are crazy. They're suicidally crazy. You come to that point. You say, well, I can't go there. I'm going to go with Peter, and I'm going to stay right here with Jesus and all the problems he brings So you look at Jesus and you say to him, I think this is what Peter means when he says, you don't have the words. You are the word. You have the words of eternal life. Nobody ever spoke like you. Nobody ever acted like you. No one was ever so strong and so meek. No one was ever so tough and so tender. No one was ever so authoritative and so gentle. No one was ever so profound and so simple. No one was ever so powerful and so willing to be killed. No one was ever so willing to be treated unjustly and yet was so just himself. No one was ever so worthy of honor and so willing to be dishonored. No one was ever so deserving of immediate obedience and so patient with people like me. No one was ever so able to answer every question and so willing to remain silent under abuse. No one was ever so capable of coming down from the cross in flaming judgment and so committed to stay there for me. Can't leave him. Can't. And I hope you, I hope you just settle it. I hope Christmas this year will be, I'm, I'm just, it's settled. I'm just settled. <laughs> I've got problems, but I'm just not going to look anymore. Look, I mean, I'm not, it's like a guy who's married, keeps looking. No. There's no future in that. It's a dead end street. We're here forever. Right? There's life. Thousands of people come to Christ this way. 
thousands come to Christ this way. You get all their questions answered up front. They just decide, okay, I've looked long enough. I've watched enough shows. I've read enough books. I've been to school long enough. My life is running out. I can't sit here on this stinking fence anymore. I just feel so absolutely up in the air. I want to be down in reality. God, please help me. Show me. And he does. He does. Now, finally, so how, how do people come? How do people jump? How do they get off the fence? How, how do they stop looking around and hovering and waiting and wondering and playing the game of one foot in heaven, one foot in hell, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom? How, do, how does it change? And, and now we're at verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now notice the connection there between the work of the spirit and the work of the word. You see that? It is the spirit. That's God's Holy Spirit who gives life. And what we need desperately is life. Life to, to, to see. Life to trust. Life to rest, life to treasure, spiritual life. That's not just an artificial, I'm going to choose, though I think everything is stupid. You know, no, you, you, life produces sight. You, you see enough of the beauty of Christ that say, that's enough. I, I want that, I want him. There's problems, but I want him. That's life. And, and the Spirit gives that life. And then it says, the words that I have spoken to you are life, spirit and life. What does that mean? I take it to mean something like this. What brings us to a final decisive commitment to get off the fence and say with Peter, not looking anymore, you have the words of life, I'm home, I'm there, I'm here. I mean, he, he blew it over and over again after this, okay? So he's just there, not perfect at all. He's just quit fooling around. I'm here. So the Spirit draws you to that. And how does it do it? It does it by the Word. It's the way I'm interpreting verse 63. It's the Spirit is the decisive thing that happens. He's doing it. But as far as my brain is concerned, I, I can't see the Holy Spirit. I can't smell the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have any particular sound when he blows. Remember chapter 3, verse 7, he blows where he wills. You can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. And so are all who are born of the Spirit. I can't see him. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing. What do I know? I know the words. I know the words coming out of his mouth. I know the word portrayed for me. And, and what, do, what do the words say? The words are a display of who he is and what he's done. I'm the bread. I'm going to give my flesh for your life. Those are words. Words coming out of the mouth of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit goes in quietly. He's the, kind of the humble, retiring member of the Trinity. And he just opens our hearts to see the truth and the beauty of those words. And what the words are doing is lifting up Jesus. The Holy Spirit is given, according to chapter 16, uh, to glorify Jesus. So when the words of Jesus 
display the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus, the Spirit says, see that, behold that, taste that. And when we see Him as supremely valuable, we jump. And in retrospect, we know it was the Spirit of God. I would have never done it on my own. He awakened me to see Him. He awakened me to treasure Him and love Him. And then you say, having jumped with good reason, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You've seen the glory of the Son. He's full of grace and truth. You've seen the glory of His birth, the glory of His death. It's everything you need as a sinner. And you embrace it and receive it. You are now spiritually alive. And Jesus will keep you. He will keep you. Those whom the Father gives to me, I keep. Nobody can pluck them out of my hand. You're safe. You're home. Problems abound. You can't leave. He's got you. Your heart rises over and over again. I can't leave. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He won't go away from you. He won't let you go away from him. And that's what it means to have eternal life. His life is in his son. And that's what it means to have a very, very Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my heart's desire in this message is that those who have struggled one foot in, one foot out, looking, always looking for another way besides Jesus' way, looking for another view of God, another view of sin, another view of hell, another view of salvation, another worldview that would make more sense out of the world if he just weren't there and there isn't one. And I'm praying that you would use this message to bring people off the fence, off the straddling. Choose you this day, Elijah said, whom you shall serve. If God be God, serve him. And if Baal be God, serve him. But don't halt between the two. So come, fill us with a song this Christmas. We will spend the rest of our lives in this world working on the problems that are created by our finiteness and your infiniteness. But God, don't let us use those problems as a reason for walking away or staying half in and half out. May Christmas be a season of settling it, I pray, this year. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.